welcome back. We're on section four of the uh, Divorcing a Business Owner or Entrepreneur webinar brought to you by O'Neill Watsaki. My name is Michelle O'Neill, and I am joined by Jerry Height and Ryan Siegel, who are both attorneys at my law firm, and we're also honored to have Robert Bales, CPA, with us today. So this last section, we're talking about post-divorce issues and how to move forward when you represent a business owner. Um, so there's some things that are kind of going on that are new and interesting. So, Robert, kick us off on what's going on new and interesting in the post-divorce business owner world. Well, new and sad, I think, is <clears throat> the way I would refer to it. Um, the Tax Reform Act had a provision in it that's really made it more difficult for us to settle a case involving small businesses. Prior to the passage of the act, we could use contractual alimony contracts to move pre-tax income from one spouse to the other to move the value of the business over. So in other words, just so, so in case there's some young whippersnapper out there that, that wasn't around before the tax act, we would commonly award the owner of the business the business and then award the other spouse some contractual alimony instead of like a payout or a loan, but used contractual alimony to offset the asset. Correct. The major asset. And the business owner could deduct it, and the recipient would report it as income for tax purposes, which made it much easier for the business owner to pay it. And because of the differential in tax rates that normally occurred, um, had the government ended up paying part of our settlements. But right. And it was an incentive <clears throat> to business owners. It was a huge incentive and probably the most common way we settled these cases. Yeah. The Tax Act did away with that for all divorces after December 31st of 17 or 18. 18, 18 yeah. I mean. Yeah, so starting January 1st of 2019, there is no more tax-deductible alimony. You can still have alimony, you just can't deduct it. Unless you were grandfathered in. Right. So if you are so, grandfathered in... So uh, grandfathered in is any divorce that was finalized before January 1st of 2019. Correct. And there was supposedly a rush uh, across the country in states that had better alimony rules than ours in Texas of getting divorces finalized to take the advantage of that grandfathered in. There was a rush in my practice. I know that. <laughs> so now in 2019, under the new rules, we can no longer use tax deductible alimony payments to offset that type of, of, um, of uh, dividing of the asset. Correct. And okay. the business owners having to use after-tax dollars at a very high rate normally. Yeah. And it's it's making it much more difficult to uh, equalize these estates. So what are some things that people are doing with that? Well, the riskiest thing I see, and I'll let you all speak to it legally, yeah. is continuing Staying to own the business post-divorce together. Right. So, Jerry, how do you go about that? Let's say that there is this business, it's community property, maybe even joint, jointly owned, but it doesn't have to be, and you're trying to get this case settled, business is the main asset, and you just can't agree on selling it or dividing it, 
So we're all going to own it together going forward. How do you do that? Well, the simplest way to do it is you simply award uh, 50% ownership interest uh, in the entity to each spouse. Now, that gets the job done in dividing the ownership entity. Unfortunately, it doesn't address any of the headaches that are going to come up down the road. And, I mean, if I was going to do that, I think I would negotiate an operating agreement as to what this new new business is going to look like, you know, who, who, so everyone's staying in their lane. And uh, I would contractually uh, create some obligations between the parties so that they're fiduciaries of each other going forward because the fiduciary relationship between the spouses ends at time of divorce and under a, if it's a corporation the shareholders don't have a fiduciary obligation to each other legally right so let's walk through that a little bit more um, precisely so so spouses when you're married owe a fiduciary relationship to each other right um, when you start in the divorce probably no fiduciary relationship in the divorce process but it's a little bit of a gray area and then at the conclusion of the divorce, the spousal fiduciary ends. So what you're saying is that then there's also no fiduciary relationship shareholder to shareholder in a corporation. Correct. The shareholder owes a fiduciary relationship to the corporation itself, to Correct. the entity, but not to a, a joint shareholder. Now there is a fiduciary duty between partners so the rules are different in partnership. That's right. But in a corporation, shareholder to shareholder, owe no fiduciary relationship. Why is why is a fiduciary relationship important? Well, because without it, to put it simply, so you can sue the other shareholder for breach of fiduciary duty, and where it comes up is you have uh, you have distributions. Okay, you have an S corp, and. Uh, let's say one party also is really doing most of the operating and getting a salary out of this corporation and the other one is not or a de minimis salary and is relying on distributions that's the value that person is going to get out of the corporation well the it might be good for the corporation not to distribute any of the money and to keep it in and to purchase more asset more you know equipment or whatever or, or, or make that decision well if that's the case then and you're an S Corp both parties are going to have to recognize the income on their tax returns. They're going to have to pay taxes on that money, even though it never comes out of the corporation. Mm -hmm. So you've got one party that has the ability to pay those taxes through their salary, and and if that party can control uh, whether it's distributions or not, the other party has no income stream from it, but does have the liability of making those taxes. It's phantom money. And that's a terrible position to have yeah. your client in. I mean, they're getting no benefit out of this ownership interest. Uh, and so you want to avoid that. So, so Bob, what are, or sorry, Robert, what are, <laughs> you got me doing it now. <laughs> Robert, what are some strategies that you recommend to people that, that find themselves in this situation where we're going to have to co-own a business after the divorce? What are some strategies that you can kind of recommend to avoid as many problems as possible? That's a tough one because um, my experience with these arrangements has not been good. Um, the best thing you can do is make sure there's total transparency in financial reporting. and like, Maybe third party do the financials. Uh, well, third party do the financials and make sure both sides see the financials, that both sides see cash positions of the company. 
that general ledgers are made available so you can see where the money went. And if you can't read one, you can at least hire someone to read one for you. Oversight's very, very important. Uh, What happens is one party's used to running the business the way they have always run it. And they're not used to having partners, is what my experience is. And they don't make the transition well. So you've got to have forced transparency so you can make sure they're doing things appropriately. Because I would anticipate in most cases something inappropriate is going to happen. And you're going to have to build in uh, procedures uh, to take care of that. Yeah. So when we were talking about the fiduciary duties, you know, some of that is kind of a trust like how much can you trust somebody so so a fiduciary relationship like is designed to give you at least you know some comfort level that you ought to be able to trust this person more than any old random person on the street they have a duty to deal with you fail or fairly yeah so and one thing that i've done in the past is bring in the attorney for the business itself because if you bring in that person, then you've got another individual and you can, you know, uh, talking about the agreements that you make in a settlement or something like that, and they can help with that aspect. Because not only will you have, you know, both sets of attorneys in the divorce, but then you'll have a new, quote, neutral third party that's representing the business that can help out with that. And if the business is owned by both of these people, then that that corporate attorney really should be somewhat neutral. I mean, better not be aligned with either side or there's some problems. Yeah. So what about what about strategies for um, for partnerships? You know, the rules are a little different for partnerships. So what if we're going to continue to own a partnership going forward? There's some pitfalls to that. Well, we have an old case uh, that one of my former firms had been involved in, and they did an arrangement like that with a partnership. And they started out with lots of millions of dollars, and she ended up with every bit of it about 25 years later. He ended up bankrupt. In every case, there was a suit for breach of fiduciary duty, and he lost every one of them. So with a partnership, if you're the one that's running the the business, you better be careful because you do have that fiduciary relationship. Right. Yeah. But again, I think you still have to have the transparency, the financial transparency, so it can be monitored. Well, and it, you know, just kind of the bottom line to me seems like if you if you couldn't get along and do what was necessary to stay married, like how in the world are you going to get along and be able to, you know, accomplish what needs to be accomplished to run a business together? One thing I've seen, I, and, and I sound so negative about this, but I do have an active case, a case we settled uh, three years ago, and it's working well. And it's the husband uh, doesn't live near the business. Um, the wife runs the business. And there's a third-party relative who's a very, very savvy business person who is a tiebreaker. Gotcha. And I don't think they've had to use that tiebreaker yet, but the knowledge the tiebreaker's there seems to make it work. Yeah. So maybe the, you bring in a third-party tiebreaker in. If you can find someone 
who's got the guts to do that. And in this case, it was kind of a natural. Uh, but I think it's working because husband's not physically nearby. Yeah. And he's still getting his cash flow. Right. That's, that's the key. Right. As, uh, so he's kind of just the non-controlling profits interest and – and she's right. running the business. Yeah, then. technically they have the same amount of control, but she runs the business. Yeah, yeah, and they're you know she's obviously you know doing what she should do rightfully by him, so that's a good thing. But that's just not that's, <laughs> that's not unusual. super common, <laughs> right? Yes, that's not. So okay, so you mentioned bringing in the corporate attorney. A lot of times, whenever you have these situations where the business is going to go forward owned by both spouses i mean sometimes the the corporation is already a party to the divorce lawsuit so sometimes you already have the corporate attorney i've i've had a lot of situations you know where we have the corporation coming in as a party and we as the divorce lawyer maybe for the spouse who owns the business have to be careful that we don't get in a conflict situation by offering advice to the corporation or to the individual as the corporate officer as opposed to the individual as the individual so having that third-party corporate attorney i think is a really really good idea absolutely and, again, and they can also draft the paperwork yes right. yes <laughs> i was about to say they, they're going to do the, the, the biz org docs and, and as you pointed out before if it does because and when i have the corporate attorney one of the things i have to fight against if i don't have the client who runs the business is well they're aligned and mm-hmm. and and in my experience that's not normally the case so having them overcome that fear but like you said as soon as that other person gets an ownership interest in the corporation you have the beauty of a fiduciary another level of fiduciary mm-hmm. duty owed by the attorney right which should give some comfort yeah yeah should, should. In my experience there in fact <clears throat> uh, when we were at a break i shared with you Mm-hmm. one I have going right now yeah. where we have a major problem and I'm the company CPA and the company yeah. attorney and I are truly in the middle and he's not taking any sides I'm not taking any right. sides right. so you know and I think both sides trust both of us mm-hmm. and that seems to maybe we'll work through this problem uh, but yeah he's he's not taking any side at all and I'm not seeing him so that's my experience. Uh, I mean, normally they're not willing to risk their license or, or anything like that. And they're no. usually trying to do the best they can for everybody. Right. They feel a duty for the corporation. For that company. Yeah. Yeah. No, the yeah. problem arises when you're taking apart their articles of incorporation or something that they drafted. Yeah. And, and then they're trying to defend that. That gets in a little gray area. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Definitely. So what about, what about receiverships? Um, you know, sometimes we have situations where receiverships, receivers are appointed over businesses, both in the divorce context, and then I think you could also have it in this type of context, right? I mean, um, so those can be problematic, right? As one who has been receiver on several occasions, <clears throat> I would strongly suggest not doing it unless it is the last resort. Right, because it's going to tank the it's value. It's going to tank the business. Um, it's probably going to trigger due on sale clauses. It's probably going to have all the loans called in yep. under the nervous Nelly right. clauses in the in the uh, loan agreements. Um, customers hate it. They they run for the hills. Mm-hmm. People don't pay the receivables because they know it's a receiver. Yeah, uh, it's problematic. It's a problem. 
So let's say you have a couple of, uh, a husband, wife, they co-own this business, they decide to exit the marriage, but still co-own the business. And you get a year down the road and it's not working. So what are the alternatives? I mean, let's first assume that they are both 50-50 owners and they both are active control. What are their options? I mean, what can you do? So why don't you can draft in buyout provisions for that. And I would suggest having a buy-sell agreement right. going into yeah. the right, process. Right, right. Because most people realize trust is low at the end of divorce, and it could blow up. So so hopefully that's already in place. So then it's just executing that. If, if I mean, someone's got to buy the other person out. That's yeah. the thing. So, but, uh, so that could be a place where the value at the time of the divorce might have been a valuable information to have, even if we're going to go forward co-owning. Yeah, but you're in this case, you're going to be buying them out. At the current value. At the without regard to the personal goodwill. Oh, that right. so that's the different so you're value. Pro- method. In, yeah, it's a different value, and you're probably, and this is another thing to consider in the construction of your agreement. You're probably going to have non-compete agreements and employment contracts in place right. to protect the business, which nullifies this personal goodwill problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the value is going to typically be higher, but what you can do is name the terms and conditions of how you pay it and pay it out of cash flow yeah yeah so so you can i mean you're you're still going to have the problem though of a 50 50 ownership of who's going to let's who's going to be doing the buying the buying out Mm -hmm. and And that's and you got to have a buy sell agreement that allows that process to take place could be a bidding process. I mean, you know, I've, I've seen them where it's a bidding process. Well, and at that point, if you're operating under the, the more normal non-divorce method of valuing the business, I mean, maybe it's just easier to value it and sell it and everybody take their money and go do something else. Yeah, that, that happens. Yeah. I, I mean, it just, it just seems like, I mean, I understand why we're in this predicament because we, we now no longer have this tax-deductible alimony option to deal with and so we have people that are just there's maybe no choice there's not enough cash you know not enough assets to for one spouse to take the business and the other spouse to take something else to get to a just and right division so that you then still have this co-ownership problem but it just seems fraught with so many problems it is now one thing we did in a case recently we had a the couple had acquired an interest in a business, an additional interest in what they had, and they had some debt for that acquisition debt. So they were loaded up pretty good with debt at the time of divorce. So what we did is we put a put option in the agreement where not he, because he's run the business, but she had the right to put it to him when that debt's paid off. So tell everybody what a put agreement is. It means the owner can force the other owner to purchase their stock at a predetermined value or based on some formula. Yeah. And we had a, I think we had a put option used. We had a, an appraisal because I wouldn't do the appraisal because I'm, I'm this, these people are my account, they're accounting clients, not right. litigation clients. So we had a, another valuation person come in and do it. So in the put option, that same company would put a value on it and she can put it back to him at her will after the debt's repaid. So there are ways to, you just gotta look at, again, 
fact specific right uh ways to get around that but a good well-drafted buy sell where one can get the other one out i think imperative right yeah so what about you know another problem that of co-ownership after divorce seems to me to be that that there can be these shareholder type derivative claims made against each other and, and i mean it just seems like the litigation could be just all-encompassing forever and ever yes <laughs> that's a simple answer yes <laughs> well yeah i mean uh, you got richie versus ruby which makes makes it harder to get an attorney to file one of those right because it's really difficult to get a shareholder derivative claim in texas now mm-hmm. and but tell, it, tell us why that is um the case pretty well made it very difficult yeah. for a non-controlling shareholder to have any say over anything or right. have any rights to anything right so the problem is now that that the non-controlling shareholders just i mean they just have to sit there and take it they're at the mercy of the controlling at the mercy, shareholder yeah. and uh but i know there are a lot of attorneys out there that if they're offered they're a trying. fee to go harass <laughs> their ex-spouse yeah they'll take the fee to go harass their ex-spouse yeah it also seems to be counterproductive because the whole point of continuing to co-own this business together was so that you didn't tank the value of right. the business. But if you continue to fight or you know talk bad about your husband in town or you know whatever, I mean anything that you do to, that affects the value is counterproductive to the point of having this agreement in the first place. I mean, I, unless the parties have a high level of trust at the end of their divorce, which is rare. I just don't see it working. You yeah. might as well sell the thing. But one thing I have seen where it does work <clears throat> is where they're a non-controlling shareholder or a non-controlling partner, and you're able to take an assignee interest knowing someone else is making the distribution decision, okay. someone else is making the operational decisions, and and we in hospitals is a good example yes, of this right you know typically a doctor owned hospital is run by a hospital corporation uh, they're the ones deciding when to pay the money out they're the ones deciding how to to make capital investments and do marketing and everything else and if you have a well drafted agreement to where you put them in as fiduciary role of those funds funds get paid to the spouse spouse has to pay the funds out and you you put some tax language in to move the tax over uh that works because they're not controlling the company you don't have to have faith in your ex and we've done several of those (laughs) but it's a lot harder when they're the one running the business right and yeah i mean i've had cases where we've had multiple corporations involved and you know, we've given them some sort of shares that don't have any voting rights or anything like that. And that way, yeah, they just sit there, they get their checks, and that's that. And, yeah. and that works out because, yeah, they don't do anything. They've got fiduciary duties to everybody else in there, and, you know, that's that. So. Yeah, so some sort of s and interest or Yeah, I mean, or if you, if you can create that fiduciary relationship associated with that s and interest, and whoever the spouse is isn't in control of anything, it works great. Right. It's yeah. that control that creates the problem. Yeah. All right. So what about what about the situation where you have maybe a corporation where one spouse owns part of it with a, 
a person, not the other spouse. In other words, husband owns 50% with his brother, and then after divorce, husband and wife now own 50%, 25 each, and brother owns 50%. There's some problems fraught with even that type of co-ownership. I've seen a lot of stuff, but I haven't seen anyone that had the guts to do that yet. Well, I mean, there would be problems with that. That's why. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, brother, other brother isn't going to let it happen. <laughs> yeah, right. Other brother would object to owning something with the brother's ex-wife. And then, you know, there's also the, the risk of who gets mad at who in the family dynamics. And Well, and if you put yourself in, in the non-working spouse's role, all they have to do is increase their salaries, yep. and you have this flow-through income. And you'll never get a dollar. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some some strategies that, you know, that you would recommend to people in dealing with this problem of the business is the major asset of the divorce and we no longer can shift pre-tax money via contractual alimony and we don't want to own it together? I mean, what are some other what are some other creative ways to deal with that? I think what you're going to find is the payout is longer to buy the spouse out because of the tax issue. Yeah. And I haven't come up with any great creative no. solutions outside of that. Well, and the problem with the payout is that it's bankruptable. Correct. I mean. Yeah. I mean, you've got to secure it somehow, but yeah. if there's no assets, then I mean, you, know, you secure it with the business, <laughs> the business goes under, yeah. that doesn't help you a lot. Right. Right. So. So what do we do? Uh, write a good CYA letter. I <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, and I, I guess that kind of falls into the category of you know we're just lawyers we aren't miracle workers we can't solve every problem that exists in the universe and this is one of the problems that exists in the universe as of january 1st 2019. that's right it's just hard to hard to solve and co-owning a business together isn't a great solution and a payout over time isn't really a great solution for either side and and so there's just not really great solutions right i mean as as the I'm the attorney representing the non-operating spouse. There's no way I take the payout over time. But at the same time, what choice do you have? Choice do you, have? Choice do I mean, have? you got that or a judgment you can't collect? Well, or you hope you that there's other assets. I mean, I mean, I guess you know the the best case scenario would be that there's, you know, a company worth a million dollars and a million dollars in a retirement account. And although apples aren't necessarily equal to apples, I mean, the bird in the hand of money, even if it is tied up in a retirement account is better than having, you know, some hope of a payout. And that would be about the best solution that you could hope for. And that works on the smaller businesses. But when you get a business where, and a lot of these successful entrepreneurs are illiquid. They keep their money in their business because that's where they make their most money. So you have a business worth Ten million dollars, and you got a house worth seven hundred fifty thousand and a half million in a retirement account. You got no choice but to finance the purchase of that business interest. Yeah, right. I mean, there's just no and, other assets. And we available. see a lot of that because mm-hmm. successful entrepreneurs are not typically liquid. Right, right. I mean, why would they be? 
It's if not they can how make, they make their money. If they can make more money having their business be more successful. Correct. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, that wraps us up for the Divorcing the Business Owner Entrepreneur webinar. Thank you all for joining us. We appreciate you being here. We hope you've learned a lot and commented a lot. Love your feedback on this program or any others that we've done or anything you think we should do in the future. We'd love that feedback. So thank you for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next time. that this is a webinar that's aimed at attorneys. This is for continuing legal education. If you're out there watching this, this webinar and you're not an attorney, we welcome you to watch it. But remember that we are not giving you any specific legal advice. We cannot comment on any specific case or situation without knowing all the facts. So if you need legal advice, this webinar is not a substitute for legal advice. Please, please seek the advice of a lawyer as to your specific situation and get specific advice to that. Because if you rely on just what we're talking about here, we're being general, we're talking about general legal pr principles that may not actually apply to your situation. This is for continuing legal education only, and we cannot create an attorney-client relationship just through the video camera. Okay? Thanks.